the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, Research Officer Camilla Burcott interviews Tawodros Malesi, Director General of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Hello, my name is Camilla Burcott and I am a Research Officer at the Development Policy Centre. And it's my great pleasure to be sitting down today with Tawodros Malesi, who is the uh, Director of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Uh, welcome, Mr. Melissa. Thank you. It is a great pleasure to be here. Um, I thought perhaps we to start, uh, you could give us a little overview of IPPF and uh, the work and the mission mm-hmm. um, for those who may not know. Yeah, uh, the International Planned Parenthood Federation is a federation of what we call nationally owned but globally connected member associations. Uh, we have 152 members uh, in, because we accept only one uh, member association per country, but we are working in 170 countries with partners and associate uh, uh, members uh, all over the world. So uh, we were founded in 1952, but uh, what we call uh, eight brave and angry women uh, from the United States, uh, Denmark, United Kingdom, Netherlands, Hong Kong, uh, Japan, and um, Singapore, and India. And they founded it in Mumbai. The issue when IPPF was founded was really mainly on women's right to choose when and if they want to have children. And that was really about contraception. So that was really the founding uh, angle of the IPPF's foundation. As you know, in many countries, maternal mortality, infant mortality, women and gender equality were not respected because women were just considered to be producing babies without taking into account what their aspiration for life is. Mm. Thank you. That's very helpful to get an overview and a sense of the history, especially. Um, I was just to know just a little bit uh, in the Pacific, how many countries in the Pacific are you, is IPPF working in? We work in all the Pacific uh, islands uh, from, you know, PNG, Solomon Islands, Cook, uh, uh, the, uh, Cook uh, the Cook Islands, Tonga, Vanuatu, you know, all the Fiji, mm-hmm. all the Pacific uh, countries which are, you know, surrounding Australia, I'm sure you, you know, and mm-hmm. Australia has got a particular interest. And uh, there we provide family planning services But also the issue of adolescence is very important. Uh, early marriage and gender-based violence is a very uh, serious issue. And with that comes uh, the STI and the HIV AIDS. So really we provide comprehensive uh, reproductive health services, sexual reproductive health services in these countries. Uh, they have diverse program, but addressing both gender-based violence and reproductive health And we work in partnership with government agencies, with the private sector, and also with the non-governmental organizations. For example, in the Solomon Islands, we work with the Catholic Church. In the Fiji, we work with the police, the maritime agency, to ensure that you know women's rights are respected, uh, gender violence is uh, uh, criminalized and uh, taken to court, and uh, that the counseling services are provided for girls and women who are affected by that. Mm, that's fantastic. Yeah, because we know that there's so many issues in the Pacific, particularly around gender-based violence. And yeah. 
Um, and it's great to hear that there's a very you're taking a very comprehensive um, approach to the issue. Um, so I wanted to talk specifically a bit about the concept of sexual and reproductive health and rights. So I think often the issue of rights kind of gets left, sort of falls off the end of the conversation. People often tend to think this is a health issue. Um, why is it so important to think about rights? Well, you know, rights is important in a sense. We're talking, talking about the respect of individual choices, informed choices. When we say we believe in gender equality, if a girl is given away for marriage, for sex, without her consent, even at times knowing that she's being taken for that, not knowing the consequences of what that engagement, what that sexual life is, it's not respect for the individual. It's not an abstract literature when we're talking about right. It's getting an informed choice of what you do, giving the appropriate information, and also being protected from being violated mm -hmm. and abused. And both the state, the community, the family, the school, all this have got the duty of protecting that individual, especially when it is a child and given away and abused sexually, that cannot be tolerated. Many governments all their life they have fought for the right, for right of employment, for equality in payment and sexuality in the human nature which existed from all ages of humanity. But we are in denial of that sexuality. All what we are saying is that has to be based on individual choices and the consent of the individual. Reproduction as an act of sexuality not all, but most people get pregnant. Do they know that they are getting pregnant? Do they want a child? Do they want it from that person? That's related to that reproduction. And the health, when it's too early, we know that the child getting pregnant, she loses her life and the baby's life and all the consequences of the health defects which are coming. That is what really basically we are saying. Sexually transmitted diseases, we know it is coming transmitted sexually, but does the person know are the consequences of the act? Does the person know that the other person is HIV positive or any other STI? Does the person know are the consequences of that sexual act there's going to be trauma or pleasure? This is what really we're talking about when we're talking about right. Right is not a question of doing whatever you want whatever you want. The right is knowing what it is, the issue, to appreciate, to understand. That's what really we're talking about. Okay. Giving the right information at the right time so that people can decide on their act. So really understand, you know, we have all these health consequences, but coming this, uh, before that, or we can prevent that by people knowing their rights and having been empowered to make make yeah. decisions for themselves. Is yeah. that my understanding? Yeah, so that they know. But also, it's not just a question of the consequences, but the longer term implication. Mm -hmm. When you are having a baby, you have to take care of the baby. You have to give food to the baby. 
You have to get food for yourself. You have to get an income. Your employment, how is it going to be affected? The community, it's not just the individual. There is also, it's not just a health. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when a girl gets pregnant, there is also associated shame. It is the men who are doing it, but the shame is transmitted to the woman, mm -hmm. to the girl. All that has to be taken into consideration. In the name of religion, in the name of culture, why should a girl be persecuted? Mm -hmm. And men also should know their responsibility in this engagement. So that's what we mean by informing, giving the right information, the appropriate education, and the methods to control either from disease or from unwanted pregnancy. Right. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the issue of sexual and reproductive health and rights in the in the SDGs and the Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. I know that you've been involved recently um, in yes. the negotiations and in ADIS. Um, what's your view of, of the SDG process and how do you think... Uh, sexual reproductive health and rights figure into the post-2015 sustainable development agenda? Um, you know, it's always easy to speak once we get the results. Mm -hmm. It was agreed only on August 3rd uh, after a long negotiation, which has taken energies and time with different political, social, cultural values, religious values around the globe. Mm -hmm. And governments, which are coming in the name of the people. And the issue is, here, we're talking about economic development, social equity and justice, and also the climate. And these are the cornerstones of this whole sustainable development agenda. Within that, if we don't tackle sexual reproductive health and rights, there can't be, if there is not a balanced development, between the economic growth, social justice, and population growth, and dynamism, there can't be a balanced economic development. Our environment is going to be overpopulation in some of the places. Even individuals, it's not just a macro level, individual level, families will not have enough food to feed themselves, to go to school, to be healthy, to spend on their health. You know, even in America, they calculated that for every dollar that the government is spending on family planning, there is a saving of $6 from the public health. So how can we connect all that? The other important component is, we always say 50% of the world is composed of women. Mm -hmm. But if we don't respect and empower women, how are we going to have economic development, social justice, equity, all those have to be included. And we have fought for a standalone goal on women empowerment and gender equality. Mm. That has been achieved. Universal sexual reproductive health and rights has been included in two sections. One under the gender goal, the second one under the universal health coverage. So, there is a gain. But now, this is a universal agreement. Mm -hmm. How is it going to be translated into national budget allocation? national legislation, national conducive environment for this to be applied. That's what we are going to be working. And our strategy for the next seven years is holding 100 government accountable. There are 190 
over uh, countries, <laughs> but at least, you know, 100 of them selecting to ensure that allocated resources, both for international development, for national budgets, are going to be allocated. Conducive environments are going to be created for engaging adolescents, for young people, and also for women empowerment and for reproductive rights and sexual reproductive rights and rights. We are going to be working with our associations, as I mentioned earlier, over 170 countries, with national institutions, with parliamentarians, with the media, with young people and the champions to ensure that these governments are going to be respecting this engagement and translate it into action. Mm. We know there are going to be challenges, both in terms of resource allocation, legislative, there are conservative forces which are in denial of these realities, but we have to broaden our alliances with community leaders, religious leaders, like we have done it in many countries, and like we have gained the consensus and an argument on a minimum package of programs around these areas, we are going to be working for the implementation at the national and regional level. Yes, as you say, it's quite exciting that we have this agreement sort of decided and, and it's in there, but now it's the next phase of, of implementing. And yeah. and that's another question I wanted to ask is, yeah. you know, is it, are there any, are there still critical research gaps that we need to fill in in order to achieve universal sexual reproductive health and rights or, yeah. or is it really just a, sort of an implementation problem? Do we have knowledge gaps still? You know, the issue is, for example, when we're talking about, usually there is a statistics on family planning, how many you know, pregnancies were averted, unwanted pregnancies were averted, uh, how many maternal diseases were averted and so on. But what because of the family planning, because of a postponement of one year of pregnancy, what did the health implication mm-hmm. for the woman? What opportunities did it open to complete education? What opportunities in social inclusion, in empowerment of women, be it in workforce, be it in income, be it in political leadership, what did it open? I think that has to be supported by research concretely saying, listen guys, these are the qualitative changes mm-hmm. in a woman's life. That's what the opportunity we give to our girls. That's the opportunity we give to our young people. But also, by denying that, that's what the nation, the community, the family has lost because we have not invested. That kind of research has to come. Because just the abstract, right, just saying the numbers have been reduced, people want to see in every day of their life the quality changing mm. and how it improved their economic and social status as a result of that. That we have to do a little bit more. That's critical. To sort of really quantify what are the advantages exactly. of, of when these rights are yeah. in place. Yeah. yeah, but also the psychological. Sometimes mm. we forget the psychological trauma that a girl undergoes, a young person undergoes by even STI, sexually transmitted infection. That means you come to the public when you meet a nurse or a doctor. Oh, at your age, you are sexually active. You are there. It becomes a shame mm. to be pregnant, to have an abortion. For some of them, they think that it's a joy. No, there are traumas. How did it affect? How did it drain mm. from an economic opportunity and a professional growth? I think that aspect also has to come because what we want is not 
the age only, but also the quality of life that we are during. What about the environment? You know, it's not just an automatic connection. Mm. How can we take care of the environment and, you know, how we can keep, you know, the climate is changing and so on. Okay, the industries have got the biggest contribution, but individual life. We are looking at GDP, economic growth, climate, but what about the individual? I think ultimately we have to take that. So this kind of qualitative research is also mm. important. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one thing that you touched on a little bit um, earlier was uh, this issue of regional and cultural or religious differences <coughs> around women's interpretation or interpretations of women's rights and families and reproduction. Um, and I think a great, like a great example of that is the issue of abortion. The unsafe abortion is a huge uh, contributor to maternal death and disability. Um, but there are sort of cultural tensions that we that um, contribute to why people are maybe have, be forced to resort to unsafe abortion. So I'm interested to know how IPF IPPF excuse me works in countries where there are these tensions between respecting cultural norms but also advocating for universal rights and for better health for, uh, for women. You know, to start with, I would say that despite the way it is presented, I think our issues, our values and care goes beyond religion and culture. Why? Look at IPPF, working in 170 countries who are in color, in religion, in culture, as diverse as anything, representing the world diversity. And these people all over the world, it's one thing which unites them, that sexual reproductive health and rights are a fundamental need and right of individuals. Who is the society, at least in theory, who says a woman should die? Men. Which is a society which says women should live in slavery? No. Which is a society that wants to leave his or her daughter or her mother to die in giving life? No. But the interpretation and the understanding of the issues, sometimes because of the language, sometimes the way of the contextual presentation can be different and it's a long struggle. And that, our approach is engaging the community leaders. I'll give you an example in what happened in Pakistan. You know that when have a price for somebody's crime committed, they were giving their daughter as a price for, you know, killing the thing. We engage the community leaders. We engage the religious leaders. They accepted it was wrong. And they went and tried to change the community. But don't, you know, while we fight to change the rules of engagement, we have also to engage to make them understand. Who doesn't care about his mother, his daughter, his child? And men have to be also responsible. I always say something. If abortion was to be carried on by men, Believe me, abortion will be legal in so many of the countries. Mm -hmm. 
because they are not the ones who are going through the pain. And yet they are the ones who are causing, who are the causes of the violence, the sexual violence, wanted or unwanted, sexual. The women don't just make their babies by themselves. And if it was men who are going to be assuming that consequence, believe me, abortion will be legal. That's where we also need to engage men. One member of parliament from Tonga told me, you know, my husband never knew how was I was suffering when I delivered a baby. He said the first one, he came to the hospital when I was delivering. He saw what it means delivering. And he said when we went out, no, we stop now. So I think it's important to engage. Sometimes boys are grown up and say, you are the force, you are dominant, you do, 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 and so on. But I think the different kind of education and engagement to mm -hmm. take place. I know it is a challenge, it looks very, uh, you know, idealistic, but we have to be angry about the state of things. We have to engage the community leaders. We have to engage champions. And young people and women also should be encouraged to fight because you cannot be given as a charity what your right is. So it's a long journey. We have moved, we have come 62 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, take Australia. It was one of the first countries to proclaim gender equality way back in 1890 and as a federal state, 1905. But how far have we moved despite the legislation? There is a long way. But it was a great move, but there is a long way to mm -hmm. move. But all of us have to work to make sure that this reality is going to be translated into action. There is hope. We have to be angry, but with hope. Mm -hmm. Yes, I like that, that expression. Angry hope. Angry hopeful. Um, another issue that's quite common at the moment um, uh, pertains to human migration and people yeah. moving around the world. And in June, um, UNHCR reported that uh, worldwide displacement is its highest level ever recorded. Yeah. One of every 122 humans is now a refugee, uh, internally displaced, or seeking asylum. Um, what are the implications of this for uh, sexual reproductive health and rights? And um, can you give me any examples or information about how IPPF is responding? One of the things about IPPF is we are not opportunities, we don't go when there is a many or when just there. Because when we say nationally owned, all our associations, we don't go from London to help them, but they do work within their community. What does that mean? Whether during the natural disaster or an emergency, we don't close our offices and go. The people who are our members, our staff, they are there to endure the sufferance and the joy of the people wherever they are. What does it mean? In situations of natural disaster, be it natural or human, I mean, or human-made, our associations try to respond. That's what we did in Syria during now the displacement of the population both internally and externally. We work in our association, works in certain provinces which are in conflict within Syria, because most of those who are displaced are women and children, because the men can afford to run away. 
either to fight or to kill or whatever. The women have to take care of the kids and most of them are there. So there are sexual reproductive health needs. Many of the great organizations worldwide, the first care is security, which is important. The food, the shelter, which are critical. But when those situations are there or without them, either as a result of rape or violence or any other situation, women suffer the consequences and children leave that. We have to provide the education, the support in that. We do that during natural disaster. Now, in Pakistan, with the support of, you know, for example, with the SPRINT program, and Australia has been a leading agent in supporting the sexual reproductive health within the humanitarian setup. And the SPRINT program now have been working in almost 10 years. And what it has done is training both government and non-governmental and multilateral organizations in minimum essential package of reproductive health services. And that, just to give you an example, we worked in the Philippines during the typhoon and for the displaced population. Recently in Vanatu, in Nepal, during the earthquake, we did a swift within 24 hours response. In Pakistan, during the natural disaster, where even the Pakistani army, which is really the one which is transporting and so on, requested our member association to be provided with training. We have managed to work in over 30 countries in Africa, in uh, East and Pacific, uh, Asian countries, in South Asia, in Africa, in the Arab world, even in Japan during the, natural, the, the nuclear disaster. All that is by providing training. We provided training for almost 8,000 people across the globe, over 30 countries, to ensure that this essential package becomes a government policy, but also within the ministries of health, the Red Cross, Red Cross and societies, and other non-governmental organizations, and where almost 400,000 people benefited from essential packages of services. And we want to strengthen. And now, in our new strategic framework, we're setting up as one of our program areas, service delivery in humanitarian setting, but also to ensure that the voices of these people, what we call the voiceless, is heard both nationally, regionally, and internationally. And we partner with Australian government to really to, to do that work. Mm, that's great. It sounds like it's it's a project that's filling filling a niche that really needs to be filled, and it's great to hear that yeah. Australia is, is yeah. a part of that. Yeah, it's really a very important work because not many people... To, uh, do recognize that you know you can hear from the UN reports in many of places there are many you know gender-based violence which are taking place in situations during the Ebola crisis in West Africa our associations responded with force to address that emergency situation using our infrastructure both the community health work and the, the health infrastructure that we have including the mobile services to ensure that in such kind of situation, women and young people are really served. So it's, it, it compounds a broader area and ensuring that our advocacy, both to UNHCR, Red Cross and Red Cross and societies, they take into consideration these elements and we partner with UNFPA to do those elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. 
This is a big question, getting towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you what you think the greatest challenge that IPPF faces as a global sexual reproductive health and rights movement is. You know, the greatest challenge that we're facing is what I call the denial of sexuality. Interpreting sexuality like a sin. Interpreting sexuality as if it is a non-human. I always say that if there was no sex, none of us would have been there. From humanity, from the old. And also so many people have died because of sex. Either unwanted pregnancy, or too early, or too late, or sexually transmitted diseases, and all related and unrelated areas, or because of lack of health services. Mm -hmm. We have to tackle it. Abortion is one issue which is really becoming very common. What I don't, for me, they tell me those who are opposed against abortion, they say they are pro-life. I say no, they are against life. It is us who are pro-life because we care about the life of the woman, the girl. We care about the family. We care about the child which is going to come to this world. You know about the smuggling of children for sex, for labor, or those who are thrown to the street. Do they care about this life? Do they know that a woman, when she gets an unwanted pregnancy, she loses all hope of completing her education, loses all hope of getting employment, loses all hope of personal dignity and personal peace. That's what we're talking about. And if they know in countries where abortion is legal, like the Netherlands, in fact, since abortion was legal, both in the Netherlands and Sweden, the abortion rate has come down tremendously. When it is unsafe, when it is illegal, when it is done in the background, so many lives are lost. That's what I say we in the Planned Parenthood Federation, International Planned Parenthood Federation, we care about the quality of life. We care about the life. That's why we say abortion is safe, is important. The first thing of contraception, the first thing of sexual reproductive health is to prevent unwanted sex. That's what we are talking about, education. Mm. You are not talking about educating or inciting people for sex because they have it naturally. We are talking about how to know about sexuality, how to prevent unwanted pregnancy, and how to make a choice based on information and education. That is to prevent unwanted pregnancy, which means to prevent abortion. And then, for whatever reason, it can happen. Mm. Is it because that, that you can deny somebody's life? And I think that's what people should realize. Poverty is related. All this immigration is not because people are naturally violent. It's because they lose hope in their life. Because there is not a balanced education, economic development, social justice. That's what 
reproductivists and respecting the individual rights of young people, recognizing their leadership qualities and their engagement. That's what it changes quality because the individual peace gives a community peace and the community peace gives a national peace and a world peace. That's what it is. Mm. Well, yes, it's it's a huge some huge challenges and some huge um, issues to think about. But um, you've done a very good job of, of putting that in context for us, and I really appreciate um, everything that you're doing in, in your leadership of, of IPPF. Um, and thank you for taking the time to no. to speak to me about it. Thank you, because this is an essence of fundamental importance. You know, we care about individual lives, not about the numbers only. Care about that important component of the confidence that people should have in themselves, in their community, in their nation. That's what is important. It's critical. Unless we have that and we work towards that, whatever we say is not going to take us far. We have to work in partnership. The private sector needs confident, educated, and productive manpower, which can produce, but also which can consume. Dead people don't consume. So the private sector is very important. It has to partner. And there is no economic growth without healthy and empowered women and young people. Mm. And thank you for the time. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. And best wishes for the rest of your stay in Australia. Thank and you. I hope we'll have a chance to speak again. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.